you to get along with is the one that's very different than yours. And um, if that is true, um, I guess that is maybe why there are certain ones that I go, oh man, how do, how are we going to get along? And so I try to talk to them and I deal with them, but I find one of the most difficult ones is uh, those who are boisterous, especially about themselves, and those who believe that the rules apply to me but not to them. And, uh, and, and so when I, when I am with people like this, understand that there are probably many strategies that can be used so that you can deal with these people and it's not so difficult. Uh, one of the ways is avoidance. What do you do? You see them coming on this side and you decide to go there. Avoidance is very good, except it doesn't solve anything. Well, it solves some immediate issues, but not in the long term. You stay away, or what a lot of people do is, there's a person in this church I just can't stand. I am out of here. By the way, you need to know that there's many people sitting amongst us who had difficulty with uh, this second one. You can use authority. In other words, certain people say, you don't mess with me in, a, in the church. And, and, and when they say that, they have a position of authority. In other words, I have a title here. I have some experience here. I have a reputation here. You have a problem here, and your problem is me. And unfortunately, often it's been pastors or priests who take this role. Another strategy you can use is the one of trying to influence the person a little bit just to change maybe that much. You can use reason. You can give them reading material. You can hit them on the head with your Bible. Uh, You can explain things. You know, you can do all of these things. These are all strategies that I have learned uh, through reading books about, in fact, one of the best book I ever read about dealing with people is called Dancing with Porcupines. Can you just imagine, you know, how difficult that would be? Uh, But there's also a Christian strategy. A Christian strategy that Paul lays out for us in our next uh, passage in Ephesus. As he writes this letter to Christians in Ephesus, understand that people that were coming to this church had a new faith in Jesus Christ. But the city around it and the city that they had been a part of was very pagan. It was very immoral. It it was very, also very human. And, and, And so... In this church, God had brought in everybody, all sorts of personality types. That's the way it is, and that's the way it always will be. He will love anybody. That's why we have as one of our core values, come as you are, don't expect perfection, we don't expect it out of you. But it's at this point, as we get into chapter 4 of his letter to these young Christians in Ephesus, it's at this point that he does a pivot. And by that I mean just like in basketball, um, You have the ball, and to get away from a defender, you pivot on one foot so you can go in another direction. You can't move both feet, but you can pivot. And so he pivots right here. To this point, he has dealt with theology. How I have defined theology is not a bunch of principles or, or big truths. Theology is how you get to know God. And he's easier to follow and to submit to if you know him. It's personally knowing God. And in these first three chapters, he has introduced to us that we are spiritually rich people, not financially rich, 
but we're spiritually rich. And he's used these terms of, of, of our wealth, or of our spiritual wealth, terms like grace and predestination, and all the spiritual blessings in, in, in the heavenly places. So the whole letter begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now that the pivot comes, he's been bragging on God for three whole chapters. He doesn't stop bragging on God, but instead of, ask, uh, instead of answering the question, what is God like and how has he blessed us? Now he begins to, ask, uh, to answer the question, what do I live like? How do I now live for God? Paul describes in the next four chapters what I call the Christian life in the big principles. You can go to seminars on each one of these principles for three days, and they're good. He just gives you the big picture, maybe a few comments. But he doesn't spend more than four or five verses on how do we live in each area. So that's the pivot, and he's describing the Christian life. Now, I want to say this because some of you have talked to me in terms of this pivot that occurs. You have only heard the pivot all of your life. What do I mean by hearing the pivot? What you have heard is, go to church and you're a good person. Give your tithe and you're a good person, you're accepted by God. You have all the do's and don'ts that you could need, but you never left with a relationship with God. He's talking here now about your background should be entering into, if it hasn't already, not a bunch of do's and don'ts, but a transformed life. So he describes following Jesus both as an individual, and many of us like our individual relationship with God, but here is the problem. And also, corporately, as the people of God. I love that poem. To be above with the saints I love, oh, that will be glory. To be below with the saints I loathe. Now that's another story. Because <laughs> it's reality. It's the way life works. And so as he writes to them, he wants you to know that God also is transforming group relationships, human relationships with other Christians, as well as your relationship with him. So to honor God, understand that he has and his agenda for your life, that you'll be honoring him by having different relationships, especially in the church. So as a whole group, what do you think the most important thing that Paul could start out with? I assume that he's starting out with what he believes is the most important. And then he goes on to other things. But I think he's starting with this is first. So, I mean, being Ephesus and being in ancient times, and they're gathered together and they probably had to be very close to one another, I think he probably would have said, Saturday night, take a bath. It'll make church much easier for you. Or he might say something like, make sure you give to the poor. Or work towards justice for those who are marginalized. Send missionaries. But that's not it. He begins by giving us what he calls house rule number one. You probably had these in your family. My house rule number one is, at dinner time, don't talk. There's too much going on to listen to Jim and the other four kids. Don't talk. House rule number one is this. For the church, get along. Get along. House rule number one is get along. Even with those for whom you find it difficult to get along. You get along, especially when you don't get along, get along. 
It is the issue of unity in the local church. And it's something that we have to understand is not so much built, but it's a gift from God. But because it's a gift, like every gift we take, we receive from God, we have to take our responsibility seriously. So, and here's how our, you know, their spiritual father, Paul, urges them to do it. Let me read the first uh, three verses of Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, beginning at verse 1, which is the beginning of verse uh, chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be, pa- be patient, bearing with one another in love. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I grew up where in a home where threats were very effective. Don't make me come into that back seat. <laughs> Paul could have used such a thing. He could have said, okay, I've given you house rule number one, and as I give it to you, don't make me come back there to straighten you out. If I have to catch another boat to come to Ephesus again, you're in trouble. But in the midst of this, he does not point to any specific problems. Now, in other places, he does. You read Corinthians. Man, there's problems everywhere in that book. They just do not know how to get along. But as he writes, he's saying it's not that this person is is a problem or this group is a problem or you're you're having uh, schisms going on. But what he wants them to know is that the God who unites them is the God who has saved them at the cost of his son's very death and at the cost of his, of his son's separation from the Father by taking on the penalty of our sins. That same God who has saved them is the same God who has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's that same God also who has called them. You may think that a calling is for ministers. A calling is for Christians. God's high cost for our lives is to result in our high devotion of his leadership in our lives. In other words, these are not suggestions that he's making. A multiple choice. Here's 13 things I want you to think about, but would you just choose the top one or two? It's not that way. It's a description of the normal Christian life in community with others. So he puts it this way in his plea. First he says, I urge you to live a life worthy. But then he makes this statement. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Unity is not something, therefore, that we create. It's another one of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that God puts into his body. It comes with faith in Christ as you gather together. We do not make it, but boy, can we ruin it. It is not an option, though. It's not like, well, the 13 things you brought up, I'm going to put that as uh, number 12. No, it is house rule number one. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You must do this. All you need to do is look at the many instructions that Jesus leaves for his followers uh, before his ascension into heaven. 
And what's the most repeated instruction he gives? Love one another. Keep the bond of peace. Keep the unity of the church by loving one another. And unity is strengthened from the Christians actively loving one another. So you need to know that. He says, this is the plea, and here are the becauses. Because why? Well, first of all, it's not optional. But secondly, why you must keep that unity is because it's not easy to keep the unity. Many of us do have sour taste for God's church because we were in a church that didn't really care about the unity of the believers. And unity does not mean you 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 think and act exactly the same way. Everything this person believes, you must believe. But they, they raise it over inconsequential issues. Now, sometimes those issues cost a lot of money. The first time I saw a church disunity, I was still a Christian one year. And the argument was over a new church organ that they wanted to buy. Now, we're not talking an organ of the world, sir. We're talking an organ. And it had a memorial name behind it. The Ralph Bunn Memorial Organ. That means Ralph died. But an organ was being dedicated and funds were being raised through him. And who do you think had the last word on what that organ would be like and look like and sound like? Well, the minister of music? No. Bun's son. Of course, because that's where the money came from. I'd never seen that before as a new Christian. Maybe you have too. This has come up from time to time. But, you know, this is a lot of money. But how about uh, the lighting? How about the color of the carpet? Uh, you want me to go on? We can ruin it very easily because it's not... I mean, it just doesn't come naturally to us. It's our human nature to be self-centered. And it's that's pure and simple. Those that live self-centered lives will weaken the heavenly bond and the blessing of unity that God puts into his church. Finally, it's not man-made. I must emphasize this, that we understand here is the really good news. You're not called to build it, to create it. It's not man-made. You're called to keep it, to maintain it, maybe to strengthen it. But you didn't have to make it in the beginning. You see, God's heaven is filled with ones. Do you see this in verses 4 to 6? There's seven ones here. For there is one body. That's one body around the world. But as you gather here, you're in one body. And there's one Holy Spirit. And just as you were called to one hope, you were called to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Heaven is filled with oneness. Our job is to be filled with oneness too. Now take that, and this is such an exciting year for American politics. I'm just going bananas here. Just take that and and consider what you're seeing in American politics today. And believe me, politics are practiced the same way no matter what party you're in. Even if you don't have a chance, even if you've already said, uh, I'm dropping out, The the politics go on. Uh, As we get closer and closer to finding who the two main candidates will be for President of the United States of America, either Madam President or Mr. Uh, President, um, as we get closer and closer, what you're going to be seeing, if you haven't already seen it, is a a 
political strategy called opposition research and advertising. You find people to look into the history of the opposite candidate, and you find ways in which you can exploit that. And it's not, it's not hard. It's pretty easy. But if you dig really deep, you can make it really easy and really offensive. So the goal is not to win people to you. The goal is to send people away from him or her. That's called opposition research. And you, you base your advertising on it and you do things. I mean, e- even uh, recently, uh, one of the opposition research was someone's eating habits. Wow, okay. You can, you can uh, belittle their policies, their voting records, their previous job evaluations, their public perceptions, their family history, their grades in school. That's why I don't run for politics. Uh, <clears throat> Because opposition research would be wonderful for me. You can use all of these things. And the goal is to make one candidate look unacceptable so your candidate doesn't look so bad. Come back to the church. The goal of honoring God in our lives is to be so focused on Jesus that we do no damage to the spiritual unity of God's church. So that means God's people, as they are gathered together, look more attractive than any mob standing outside an auditorium. Than any uh, advertising that comes up and telling you how bad one person is. Our unity is to be attractive to the world. So if God creates the unity out of his nature, how, how then can there be disunity? Well, you see... Disunity does not come from God's nature, but it comes from human nature. And so he gives us a challenge. Here are the things that you want to be aware of. Now, you won't find these words in our passage, but you'll find them throughout Scripture. So the challenge is, is that for you to maintain or to keep the unity in the church from your vantage point, from all that you can... You've got to understand your human nature and that it's filled with things like this. First of all, pride. Pride means that we need to prove our personal superiority. The church is unified for those who are prideful when it falls in line with my preferences and my opinions. You see, the same Paul who wrote to uh, Ephesus also wrote to Corinth and as he does that, he tells them, you know, he tells them, you spend your time together highlighting your differences so that you can be on a pecking order in the church in Corinth. And you think by being a higher on that pecking order, you have more of God's approval in your life. That church had all the truth of God. Wasn't missing any of it. That church had all the gifts of God. The spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Ephesians and in, in Romans and, and in, uh, in Corinthians. But it had none of the unity of God. They didn't keep it. They didn't maintain it. And so when he says, do all that you can, he means we've got to put an effort here. It's like, I'm going to go to CrossFit for unity. I'm going to enroll so that that is part of what I'm doing. The second thing is just personal selfishness. That demands that I get things my way. I go to Burger King, I can ask for whatever I want, I get it my way. But I go to the church, and I don't. To a church in Macedonia called Philippi, 
uh, Paul writes, uh, and he says this amazing thing. He asks that each Christian would consider other Christians better than themselves. That doesn't mean of more value. That doesn't mean if I was sold as a slave, I'd get $600, but this person would only get $1.50. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means a consideration that this person is is loved by God. And, and this is not talking about equality. Don't consider them equal with you, which is the American way, but consider them better than you. He instructs them not to look after their own interest, but also the interest of others. He also talks about gift projection. and In other words, gift projection means everyone should be called to see it as I see it, value it as I value it, and do it as I do it. I've done this. I have experience. I'm gifted this way. So you would be best if you let me lead and you learn from me. Um... I haven't seen that in a while, and I like that, okay? That we do take suggestions. We do try to absorb things that can be done better. And one of the reasons is, is I sat down one night, and I was thinking this attitude shows up, this sort of gift projection, and knowing that there's one Jim DeMoler that you probably know. And there's four other people with the last name DeMoler to whom I'm very close, very close. And if you mentioned to them, wouldn't it be great if we had two Jim DeMolers? They'd run away. Now look, they love me. I'm their dad. But two of me? No way. So it is in the church. We're allowed to have our individual, uh, you might say, uh, our our individual quirks, our, our individual approaches to issues. We're allowed to do that. But we're not allowed to place it on the entire church. And there's four demolers who would say amen to that. The second, or the final thing is impatience. Uh, impatience causes, you, you might say, this fractious attitude. People are slow to smarten up and get as smart as you are and to finally agree with you. Many of you parents know this. Uh, one of your children maybe learned to ride a bike with just two lessons. You took off those, those training wheels and you pushed them a little bit and suddenly uh, you found them saying, okay, you can let go, but you're a block behind. Where the others said, I don't ever want to ride a bike. I'm tired of falling. And you go back in a year or two. And, and, and who do you have impatience with? Teaching them to love their vegetables. Well, not love them. Eat their vegetables. Uh, Teaching them to attach not too much energy or too much value to things that are not so important. We had this, and, and uh, I won't mention any names, but their initials are Diane Pulvermiller and Rick Adams. And we had this issue in our church about 15 years ago. And here it was. And it was the old facility. So we didn't really attach that much to it, but um, we had our children's ministry, which... They're now ministry, you know, they're doing great now. We had our children's ministry, and for the younger children, they always came out with a craft. And we had our custodian, and his name was Rick Adams, Diane Pulvermiller helping with our children's ministry, Rick Adams being the custodian. And part of the crafts were simply this. We love on our artwork, we love glue and glitter. <laughs> so 
you can imagine all those children shaped around that table, okay? All of them. And, and, and so they got the glue and the glitter and they picked up the glitter before it really dried and it wasn't always on the glue and they shook it around to go show mommy so it would dry. And, and that next Monday, if you picked up the table, you know what you could find? A glitter ring all around the, the footprint of the table. Well, there's one problem with a custodian. Glitter and carpet and vacuums don't get along. The glitter says, I want to stay on that carpet. And the vacuum is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. And the glitter wins. <laughs> Almost every time the glitter wins. So they had a problem. And, you know, I, I could say, oh, boy, you know, for me, I don't really care. But I didn't vacuum. I didn't want a nice, clean church on Sunday mornings for people to come into. Diane and Rick got together and they also made it a very low uh, priority. But the maturity was coming out in both parties. But they really knew how to say it in a way that they understood each other. <laughs> so Rick, uh, Rick asked Diane for care. You know, just be careful. And uh, Diane said, yes, I will be careful, but I can't be perfect. We say that to the Romanian orphans all the time. We're not perfect, and we prove it. Um, and the final thing we did is we got linoleum. <laughs> that solved it better than anything else we ever... It wasn't even thought of. No one won. And the unity was kept. Care was taken. The glitter off the floor, most of it was coming up. And, and the disunity was kept to a bare minimum. The unity in Christ carried greater value than their difference of opinion. So those are the things that can destroy our unity. That's the challenge that we have. But let's look at the process. I go back to chapter, uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, which I have really uh, uh, sort of avoided to this point. He tells them that the way that unity is kept is by individuals taking character responsibilities of what God wants to do in their lives. So he says in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humble's a great word. It's even a better word in Greek. Humble. Two syllables, right? In English? Seven in Greek. Just one little syllable after another, after another, after another. Have you ever noticed that the longer a word becomes, the more specific it gets so you can get out of it? Right? If it's seven syllables, that means I don't have to follow this syllable and being humble, or this syllable and being humble, or this syllable and being humble. But I'm humble. <clears throat> There's enough in there. So it's a responsibility that is given to each Ephesian Christian. And it was kept by them looking through these, this one verse and applying it to their lives. Unity is kept by each one of us taking to heart what we read in that verse. So humble, Paul puts it well when he says, don't have a high opinion of yourself in another letter. That does not mean have a low opinion of yourself, but it means you consider others more important than yourself. Secondly, it means he says, be gentle. Gentle means you're not out to win. This is not the Super Bowl. Threats, anger, 
outburst doesn't work. Turn down the heat and you turn up the unity. Third, he says, be patient. We talked about being impatient. He says, now add to this, being patient. And patience takes time to bring people along. I love watching as as Jesus can do a miracle at the snap of a finger. He can do a miracle like that. What do we have, he says? Well, we have uh, seven loaves and two fishes. Bring them here. Okay, now distribute them. And it's enough for 5,000 men and probably at least 3,000 women and children. So it's a huge number that he feeds. And he does it like that. Um, Two disciples named James and John were called sons of thunder. That probably means the way they spoke had a certain tone to it, and they used a certain vocabulary as fishermen that I don't use here. I try not to use it when I'm fishing either. But uh, they, they had these words, how long did it take for Jesus to change them? Be patient. He worked with them for three years, and there was no evidence that change occurred until after his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Be patient. Um, Paul uses in the, in the book, uh, the letter of, uh, to Galatia, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And out of the fruit of the Spirit, you'll see some of the things we're talking about. Love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, uh, you see that, that patience there. He listed as one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Um, think. What we want to do is to end this message by bragging on God one more time. But knowing how hard it is to see a life change. Think about this. You do not want to get a DUI um, in Summit County because you will face my daughter who will give you a series of things that you must do. And if there's one thing my daughter does perfectly, it keeps me accountable. So you don't want to get one. Driving under the influence of either alcohol or drugs or something like that, so your driving is erratic. But you do want to get what I call An L-U-I. An L-U-I versus a D-U-I. Not driving under the influence, but living under the influence of the Holy Spirit that God has delivered to you and he has entered your life so that these things can happen. You want L-U-I's and you want to be pulled apart. I've never been... I remember that commercial, and I can't remember once in which I was pulled over by the police, and he knocked on my window and said, that was the best stop I ever saw you do at that stop sign. Can I just give you a reward? But he was, you know, if I did, he'd be saying, you're living under the influence of the rules. We want to be living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And what is the main evidence that we have about patience? Several years ago, my father-in-law was preaching at a or teaching at a church, and and he saw in the lobby um, this statue, which was life-sized. 
And by that, I mean Jesus was even taller than he probably was in life. I think he was in, in this, he's about eight feet tall. So it took over the center of the lobby of this large church. And it's an image of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. So as he said, that it impressed him so much to see that as he went in to the lobby that he decided to buy one for me. And this is not, you know, a cheap souvenir. This is it's got a number on it and the name and how you can get one too. And I, I have bought one for one person, not because she needed it, okay, but I have bought it for one person. And because I have this on my desk. If you can find my desk, I try to keep it above all the stacks of papers and books. I try to have it visible. And why is that? There comes a moment, you see, when um, Jesus walks into this place where he does the foot washing, and the whole idea was the Passover. It's about the Passover. And the Passover, you see, was this great meal where people would celebrate God's salvation of the Jews. But as Jesus walks in, he knows, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us this, that his own disciples are talking about who would be number two in his kingdom. Who would sit next to Jesus? And, and, and so to counter that, in John it says, Jesus takes off his outer clothing. He takes a towel and wraps it around him. He picks up a basin and another towel, and he goes from disciple to disciple to disciple, washing their feet. Now, washing feet happened when you came into a house. Nobody washed Jesus' feet. It was done by a servant or a slave, not by the Lord of the universe. And, and so as he comes in and he does it, you know, his, his own disciples are just really humbled as they watch him do it. Uh, and, and as he goes from one to one to one, we understand that Jesus makes this an object lesson. He says, if I have done this to you, so this is how you treat one another. I want you to know I stare at this often. I stare at it, not just because my mind is blank, I stare at it. And I ask the question, am I Peter or Jesus today? Am I more like Peter, wondering, can I be number two? Or am I more like Jesus saying, I'm number 13? If you want to honor God in your life, Paul says, keep or maintain the unity that you already have. And if you want to see that unity occur, very simply, you call yourself a servant of all. Where at Bergen Park Church or If you're a visitor from another church or if you're not in a church because you're avoiding certain personalities who will definitely be in church. But where at Bergen Park Church are you honored to be a foot washer? You're either the washer or the washed. Where are you the washer? Let's pray.
Father, we are grateful now. For now, as we make this pivot, we understand that we're given great responsibility. We're given great blessing. This is a work of your Holy Spirit that he can do in your life and that we cannot do on our own. And Lord, with so much talent, so much education, so many degrees, so much success among us this morning, this word is very important. We yield to your Holy Spirit so we can be the church that you created that stands out as one of the few unified things, not disunified things in this world. Both here, locally, in our state, in our country, and around the world. We are one in Christ. God's people said, Amen.